0: Please turn to Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 to 19. Now, I need to make a confession here. Um, When this passage was assigned to me, I told Seth, I said, I'm going to change my address after this sermon. Seriously, all scripture is equally inspired by God. And it is profitable for our instruction. Let me pray. Lord, would you help me to be faithful to the text and help us together to shut out the voices in our culture and to hear what the Spirit says to the church and what the Spirit says to wives and to husbands. And to the family, we thank you for your instruction. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Straightforward passage. Only one verse. Usually when you preach a sermon like this, you get to talk about the husband part too, so that things are evenly distributed. But I don't get this luxury. Seth is going to preach that next week. Notice the text. Wives, submit To your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, I am going to read the next verse, but not preach on it. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So, taken out of the biblical context in our culture, this looks like a dangerous recipe when we read the words that Paul has written here. But this can only be understood in the context of what God originally designed marriage to be, and redemptively, in in history of the Bible, what happened that it would be necessary for Paul to write this to a bunch of ex-pagan Christians living in Colossae. Now... uh, I know that in this room is a collection of highly intelligent motivated successful highly educated women okay I'm aware of that but this has this is an ethic that rises above our culture and our our self identity it is something that God wants all Believers to know. Now, let me clear something up very quickly. What we see in marriage today is not what was originally created by God in the Garden of Eden, but there's continuity. I was, uh, Sarah and I were up in Pennsylvania several years ago shopping around in a little town called Lidditz, Pennsylvania. I saw a sign on the wall, and here's what the sign said. Marriage is made in heaven, but so is lightning and thunder, okay, and I thought, you know, I, I wonder what was the writer of that, and I don't know if it was male or female, but the the artist who made that must have had a bad week, And and, um, and, and so you know, what, whatever was going on, I don't know if they were criticizing God or they were saying, you know, this, but that. They were at least recognizing that marriage does bring with it certain good things, but it also brings struggle. And, um, and I think that's got a lot to do with what I want to get at this morning. Now, this, uh, by the way, if you agree with that sign, you may not want to punch your spouse if they're sitting next to you if that's true I think of of someone I read years ago that had a profound impact and just in my own thinking it's uh, Barbara and uh, Dennis and Barbara Rainey Dennis has been a Christian counselor for many years and I know she's been engaged in ministry in a book called staying close and he raises a question they both raise this question why did you get married? Why did you get married? <laughs> for sex? For romance? For children? Uh, to take away loneliness? All those are a part of the picture, but why did you get married? And so he interviewed several children, <laughs> aging I think from like six or so up to like 10 or 12, and listened to the answers. Glenn who's nine years old, says, when I get married, I want to marry someone who is tall and handsome and rich and hates spinach just like I do. Huh? Well, there goes um, Popeye. Arnold, who's age six, said, I want to get married, but not right away yet, because I can't cross the street alone yet. Steve, who is age 10, said, I want to marry somebody just like my mother. Aw. Except I hope she don't make me clean my room. <laughs> well, I got news for Bubba. <laughs> I wish I had a dollar for every time to Sarah, my wife, has said, pick up your socks. Bobby, who is age 9, first she has to like pizza. Then she has to, like, look at the order, cheesecake. And then after that, she has to, like, fudge candy. Then I know this marriage will last forever. (laughs) Well, whatever. Um, Rainey goes on to say, you know, uh, he's counseled a lot of adults, and he said, and I haven't, I've seen answers that are kind of along those lines. Why did we get married? And uh, why did you as a woman marry your spouse? There was a philosopher named Seneca. He was the tutor for a person, Nero, who became uh, emperor of Rome. And he said one day, he said, You must know for which harbor you are headed if you are to catch the right wind to take you there. To which, this Christian counselor writing this book, Rainy, he says, one problem with so many marriages is that partners have so many varied purposes for getting married. The result is that husband and wife sign on to a lifetime voyage, but they set sail for different ports. <laughs> and how true that is, and he said, so... It's no wonder that eventually they end up in different ports their ships are in two pieces isolated and alone. And the point is that God had a he had a number of reasons for why he created marriage which are stated I can't cover them all of course but here's some of the highlights. One It was meant to be a reflection of a picture of God on this earth. Two, it was designed by God to extend his kingdom rule, his lordship, over all of this new created order. Three, it was meant to reveal the relationship of sinners now redeemed called the church in the new covenant... It was meant to reflect a relationship in husband and wife of Christ to his church. And fourth, it gives direction and it brings stability. So what is it then? Welcome to the Trinitarian worship service called marriage. Now, why in the world would I lay that out? Because for this reason. Look at the text. I hope you have Colossians opened in front of you. But I'm going to first quote from Romans chapter 12. Paul writing, after he describes the gospel, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, bodies as living sacrifices. He's using the language of the temple. And he says... You should offer these bodies as your, what is translated, your spiritual worship. Actually, the Greek there is cane, from which we get logical, your rational worship. In other words, it makes sense that you would worship God in this particular way because of what God has done in Christ Jesus in Christ saving you from your sins, making you righteous by giving, him, giving us his righteousness in Christ. So it makes sense that all of life, all of life, there's nothing left out, is now an act of worship. But there is something further here. The same Paul who wrote that wrote what we're looking at. Now look at Colossians chapter 3. Last week, Seth preached on this. But I wanted to show you something that hit me like a ton of bricks as I read it this week. And I'd never noticed this before. Notice verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Referring to the church. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, which is what we've just done a few minutes ago. So he's describing a worship service. You notice that. And and he goes on to say, do this with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, he says, in word or deed, do everything in the name of Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives remember there was no break in the original manuscript wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord and then he goes on to talk to to the rest of the family and to husbands it hit me uh, having spent uh, a good chunk of my time years ago in studying archaeology in Jerusalem and in Israel um, I began to pay special notice to the structures of houses. And houses, the early church did not have big places like this. You know why? Because they were oftentimes being persecuted. So you met in house churches. In fact, right at the end of Colossians 4.15, Paul finishes this letter by saying, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and to the church in her house. So think about it. If you were, you were in a worship service, you, which is involving worship to God, to the Trinity, and you're giving thanks, then naturally, whatever happened in the home since the church met in the home, was pretty well known to the neighborhood. (coughs) Excuse me. Now, I ask the question, and I want you to think about this for a minute, verse 18. When Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands, which is fitting in the Lord, um, is this just kind of like when you sign a contract? You you know, you stand in front of the pastor, you, you make your vows to each other. Is this kind of a fine point statement of a wedding contract that looks like a great promise, you know, to have and to hold to this day forward? Wow, how exciting is that when you're a young couple? But is it that legalese stuff that's in the fine print that follows? Wives, submit to your husbands. Wait a minute, is this what I signed on for? And it's kind of like it's at the end of the marriage license. Is this something that is being described here that's a bit of a surprise? Well, you see it in its biblical context, and there's no surprise at all. Um, it's like one man said, uh, he said years ago when they were hijacking planes down there in Florida, Um, He said, I felt like when I got married, I thought I was going to Bermuda or Bahamas, and instead I got hijacked to Cuba. That's awful. My brothers, sisters, um, the world system is under the power of Satan. We know that biblically. We know the voices in our culture that has come to the point where there are such violent, malicious attacks on the family that it causes us to force ourselves to go back to the basics and see what does God have in mind? How am I to reach that harbor that Seneca talked about? Well, first and foremost is this. Um, The perfect marriage was, it was made in heaven, as that sign said. And it started with God the Trinity. But it didn't have the lightning and thunder. Because the lightning and thunder shows up when sin shows up. And I want you to see why that's the case. So let's see where, why marriage, male, female, husband, wife, relationship, why this is portrayed as such. Genesis chapter 1. We are allowed to eavesdrop on a conversation between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit here in Genesis 1. This is the opening of the Bible, and we read these words, verse Genesis 1, then God said, let us, plural pronouns, you see that, don't you? Let us make man in our image. There's a conversation we're hearing. And as the three persons of the Trinity are talking with one another, they go on to say, let them have dominion. That's kingdom language. Let, we're going to make humanity. We're going to endow them as image bearers. And through them, we're going to extend our rule throughout the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Listen carefully, male and female, he created them. And then God says at the end of the chapter, behold, it was not just the, it's not just Tov good, it's Tov Ma'o. This was really good. The Holy, it's it's like God is patting himself on the back and saying, you know, of all the stuff I made and all the creatures, intelligent beings I made, this was the best I've done. Now, smile with that. This was pre-sin. And so, when we read these words, he goes on to say in Genesis 2.18, Then God said, It is not good that man be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, what? In the Hebrew, I will make him an ezer, Kanegdu. Azer is a fascinating word throughout all of the Old Testament. It means it's used of a mighty soldier. Now women don't go on a war path over this, okay? But he's saying, I'm making woman or Adam, Eve, to be an Azer, a help. It's a counselor to a king, is how it's used throughout the Old Testament. So she's not a doormat. She is to be one who is there to take away loneliness, but also to bring godly counsel. But ezer konegdu, it's the konegdu. What in the world is that? It's an idiom. Ka is like or as and according to his front. I will make her a helper according to his front She's not opposite. The modern idea is that the sexes are opposite. That's not the biblical picture. The idea is that they correspond to one another and they fit together physically, sexually, mentally, emotionally in their essence as image bearers of God. You see that? And so they're not competing. There's a oneness that is described there and it's glorious. And God is is he he places a benediction and says, this is good, this is very good. Now, the Trinity celebrated in that benediction, in that divine worship service, before he made us and as he made us. But here's what happens then. Now, just a footnote. As Christians, we do believe in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we profess that there is one God three persons, not three gods, one God, three persons in unity, that is the picture God had in mind when he created maleness and femaleness and marriage as the context in which intimacy and love and communication and relationship could be expressed in its fullness. That's what, that's that's why it is a divine worship service. And since all of life in Christ has now become worship, then we are as husbands and wives to engage in seeing our marriage as an act of worship. But in the fall, things fell apart. Yep. And so the problem was not that there was a, a, a creation of two persons but different sexes to demonstrate accurately in this world what the image of God is like, but there was both what they were in their essence image of God, but then there was also the arrangement, uh, the, the, we call this the economic trinity. The Father, Son, and Spirit are God, but the economic, the economy, how it works out, there is an arrangement. This is how oneness is going to work. And so that's why the Father sends the Son to come and die on a cross for our sins. God so loved the world that he gave. And so the, when sin happened, the oneness that he had created suddenly is being severely challenged. Now, Satan knew this, that if he could seduce Eve and get her to turn against him by rebelling and against her husband by going about this without working as one with him, that if he could divide her from God and from her husband, and furthermore, Adam was standing Ima by her side. He was there the whole time and said nothing. Okay, you see it? So he failed to lead in a godly way, and she failed by listening to the voice of Satan. So what happens? That perfect marriage that was made in heaven, that is based on the Trinity, has now create, has, has now experienced sin in the temptation. And so here God shows up and starts asking questions, and then he pronounces curses. In Genesis 3:15, he says to the to Satan, he says, I will put enmity, enmity between you and her seed and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. That was the first messianic promise that says the cross is coming. You sinned, Satan, I'll deal with you, but I'm going to deal with you in my time and in my way, and the day's going to come when he's going to crush and destroy you, the serpent. That's one. Then God says to the woman, he says, In verse 16 of Genesis 3, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. What was God's design? Multiply, fill the earth. Birth, a lineage, children, grandchildren. God said, fill the earth. I've given it to you to enjoy and to bring glory to me. And so now what was the blessing? He's saying, you're going to struggle now. Struggle now comes into the relationship, and he says to the woman, you're the one that's going to struggle with this especially. And so this is what's fascinating in this verse, and I don't know what version of the Bible you have, but he goes on to say, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. I want you to be aware that that contrary to, you'll only find that translation in the ESV, and you'll only find it in the New Living Translation. And I spent some time looking at the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the Hebrew, (laughs) believe it or not, I spent time on looking at this, that that was something that seemed to be written into their Greek translation of the original Old Testament, 150 years before Jesus. Why do I mention this? What is the implication? Remember that before sin, these are two lovers who are uniquely without sin in love with each other in marriage, with God's richest blessing. And now that sin enters the picture... Division and self-centeredness has replaced other-oriented loving, love. And as a result of that, that's where the lightning comes in. Wow. We have, we have gone through in our culture every kind of human experiment. We're still experimenting and playing with it and enforcing laws to try to apply it. We've gone through chauvinism, the oppression of women. We've gone through feminism, the liberation of women, breaking off the, berry, the, the shackles of marriage. We have rejected marriage and family as a chauvinist uh, hangover of something that is bad from the past. And we've even gone so far now to charge that marriage is slavery. That's not what God had in mind. And so Jesus himself steps onto the scene, and he's the one who says, no, you sinned. I'm going to send the Messiah. Messiah comes. Jesus brings restoration to the broken relationships, so that Ezer Konegdu, man and wife, can once again begin to experience the change in their marriage from being self-centered, fighting and clashing with each other, to come back and to begin to experience God's original plan for marriage. Tony Evans, who wrote, um, wrote a book on what he calls kingdom marriage, said, Kingdom marriage not only shares passion, but more important, it has a purpose. Now, listen to this. Passion matters, and happiness is great. But rather than being the purpose of marriage, they are benefits. They're not the purpose. Marriage exists to glorify God. We see that in the Genesis account. God said, let us, okay? We see that. It uniquely reflects his image, male and female, he goes on to say, when you pursue God's purpose as a couple, then everything else you value in life, such as happiness and joy and love, it begins to fall into place. Can I have an amen on that? <laughs> and so the he goes on to say, the absence of a kingdom purpose in for marriage makes it appear as if couples have been married by the Secretary of War rather than the Justice of the Peace. <laughs> and there it is. It is true that it's not let the fighting begin but it's that God is saying, I'm still going to use marriage. That's what he says to Eve. But when he says, your tendency is now going to be to resist your husband and to rise up and to try to control him, he's, of course, going to have to rule over you. Now, let me pause. Men, this is not a mandate for us to be Uh, little Hitlers. It is not a mandate for us to demand that our wives, we we subjugate them. What this is, is saying headship is still God-ordained and blessed, but be careful how you show love. He says in Ephesians, you lay your life down for your wife. But he says to the wives that there needs to be oneness, that's the goal of the marriage, but that oneness is something that we need to know the harbor. We need to know where we're headed. And so discord and disharmony is exactly what two self-centered individuals now are going to grapple with, but the marriage will still, con- will, will still continue and children will still come. That's the promise. So what's the core problem? The problem is not marriage. It's not the institution, if you will. It's the heart. And Jesus calls us to be servants. Redemption is brought by Jesus to my broken marriage. Embracing each other involves embracing the wisdom and the counsel and the power of the Holy Spirit to change my self-centered heart, not once and done, but every day when we begin to clash, we need to understand this is really about King Jesus. So what is submission? In the Greek, the word used here is called, it is a present middle imperative. Now, what in the world does that mean? Present means continuous action, Middle means, passive would mean you are forced to submit. On the other hand, you, it's not active, it's middle that means ladies. The Holy Spirit says to you in your marriage that you are the one who needs to take that initiative to respond as a godly wife to what at times is an ungodly husband. And Peter recognized that. So it was in Roman households that they made their wives obey, but that's not the word in the Greek that was chosen here carefully. It was the word choose to submit, that is, choose on your own to submit to your husband because in Christ, He has redefined and recentered your heart, and He's in the process of using you to recenter His heart. In fact, listen to what Peter says. I love it. I, I just, guys, we're jerks. I'm a jerk. I've been a jerk many times. Where's Sarah? She's in the room somewhere. Where are you, Sarah? Is your hand? Am I a jerk some days? does everybody see that? It's because I am not totally sanctified. Sinners who are made into saints, saints who Christ in his Holy Spirit is working on us to change us. And so what we see here is that Peter is fully aware that the Submit, which is, remember middle voice, I, you as a wife are choosing to submit not because I am right, he is right, but because Christ is right. And he knows what it's going to take to take this conflict and to put that marriage day in, day out, back together in a way that glorifies Christ. Can I say this? It's as if you're, whether he's not a Christian or he is a Christian, as you show the grace of Christ, it's like you are a Christ-planted evangelist in your marriage to help him to become something he would not otherwise become without you. You are preaching the gospel to him every day. So Peter says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands." See, he says the same thing. So that even if some do not obey the word, see, there's the jerk part. Even if they do not obey, even if your husband is acting like a jerk, he's saying, do this so that they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. That puts Quite a burden on your shoulders. So when they see your respectful and pure conduct, he's saying, Don't let the adorning be outward beauty, though that's wonderful. But he said, Don't make that your emphasis. He says, Let your adorning be the hidden purpose, person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Can I have an amen on that? And so what, I know it's a Presbyterian church. This is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord. Now, I've Sarah and I have had that discussion about that verse many times, and I don't press it, okay? But he says, You are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Why would he say that? Because your concern, especially in the face of a sinning husband, is if I submit to him, I'm afraid it's going to destroy my self-image. Well, Peter says, don't worry about it. Honor Christ. Preach the gospel to him and let God take care of him. So, let me just summarize some things. Oneness is the goal, and that means it's not going to happen by accident. It is a process of living life together, learning how to develop that oneness. Submission is not an admission of inferiority. Jesus submitted to the Father not because as a second person of the Trinity he was lesser God. That's what Jehovah's Witnesses say. No, he's fully God. He submitted because the Trinity had agreed in eternity that we we would sin so Jesus would be sent by the Father to redeem sinful people and the Holy Spirit would be sent by the Father and the Son to bring us to that faith in Jesus. It's called new life. And so that's what we have here. It's an economy, it's an arrangement, it's how things will work. And Paul knew this when he wrote these words. Wives, this is God's plan for you to your husband. It is. And I'm not gonna soft pedal that because I'm not smarter than God and neither is our culture. You are not called to be a doormat, but you are called to be one who will bring Christ to him continually over a lifetime. And here's the promise that the godly in the godly feminine response is going to be something that the Lord is going to take and use in that man. Let's pray.